Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 77, Once a Follower, Now a Leader. Last episode, Joseph Jugashvili went from Koba, the innocent revolutionary, to Joseph Stalin, one of the top men of the Bolshevik party. Lenin at this time, with a coup over the provisional government, seemingly successful, said, quote, Socialism is already staring us in the face through the windows of modern capitalism. But as Radzinski points out in his book on Stalin, quote, It all looked so easy. Everything is monopolized in the interests of the victorious people. A single state bank is established, Leviathan to dominate the whole country. Everybody would take a turn governing everybody else. Literally, the whole population would be involved in government. Cooks would learn to administrate the state. And people would gradually reach the point at which nobody governed anybody else. The hateful state, which had enslaved mankind for centuries, would die away. This was the dream which would lead them to create the most monstrous state of all. Lenin and Stalin were set in their ideals that capitalistic thought should die, especially the word mine. A story Stalin enjoyed telling went something like this. St. Francis taught men to live without property. One must monk asked him, Can I at least have a Bible of my own? St. Francis answered, If today you have your own Bible, tomorrow you'll start giving orders telling somebody, go fetch my Bible. I've already gone over the revolution when I covered Lenin, so I'll concentrate on Stalin's role. His distinct position during the first years of the revolution and subsequent civil war was to be Lenin's shadow. Only two men had immediate access to Lenin, Trotsky, the hero of the coup, and Stalin. I really can't begin to tell you all the horrors suffered by the common people during 1917 to 1919, especially those who backed the Tsar. Men were tortured, boys sodomized, women and their daughters in prison were sold to common criminals to have their way with. Stalin was not directly involved with this abuse. Oh, he was saving that for the abusers. And in his time, the torture and the murderous sprees would far outpace and far outnumber anything even considered by the early revolutionaries. By now, Lenin had successfully taken over the Soviets and neutered them by putting his people into all the most powerful positions. Stalin sat there in the shadows, protecting his idol. Stalin's job was to support Lenin and his ideal. As Radzinski put it, Marx's dogmas were now the Old Testament. Lenin served the New Testament, the one and only deal of which was to hang on to the power you have seized in this country. Stalin now became the iron fist to quell rebellion throughout Russia, working with men like Voroshilov, who was to survive many of Stalin's purges over the years. He suppressed rebellions brutally wherever he was sent. His relentless suppression became legendary within the ranks of the now newly named communists. 
Then an event happened that was to change everything. On August 30th, 1918, Lenin was shot three times and hit twice, which was to hasten his demise. There's a lot of doubt about whether Fanny Kaplan, the half-blind woman, acted alone. But whatever the truth, she only wounded Lenin, giving Stalin time to think of uh, what move to make next. Trotsky, leading a battle against an insurgent Czech army, returned to Moscow, Sure, he would have become the leader if Lenin died. And yes, he would have, had Lenin not survived the assassination attempt. Now, the Red Terror would envelop Russia to terminate with extreme prejudice all who opposed the Bolshevik communists. In 1881, the Tsar's ministers debated whether to declare each and every member of a revolutionary party responsible for any further crime, however small and outside the law. And this is after the assassination of Alexander II. They just couldn't pull the trigger. The Bolsheviks, they could. The Tsar and his family, dead. The remaining relatives, confidants, helpers, sympathizers, and the like, dead as well. Many would be tortured and murdered in the name of preserving the revolution for the good of the people. Mikhail Bakunin foresaw this dictatorial slaughter 40 years earlier. This was to be just a small prelude to what was to come, a mere glimpse into the horror the next 35 years was to bring to Russia. Stalin, for his part, was gathering power. Building his base as Lenin kept appointing him to one important position after another. He was a member of the Politburo, the true power of the Communist Party. Then he joined the People's Commissariat of Nationalities and Workers and Peasants' Inspectorate. On top of that, he was a representative on the Central Committee and the Revolutionary Military Council. His power base was by now enormous. In 1922, at the 11th Congress, one E. Priobrozhinsky said, quote, Take Stalin, for instance. It is, is it really conceivable that one man can take responsibility for the work of two commissariats while simultaneously working in the Politburo, the Orgburo, and a dozen commissions? Well, of course the answer was no, but Lenin kept adding titles to Stalin. Faithful Stalin. Lenin knew that only that the only man cruel enough to carry out the Bolshevik revolution to its natural conclusion was Stalin. All the others, Trotsky, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Bukharin, they were all too weak to carry out the necessary brutality and cold-blooded murder necessary to bring a socialist Eden to bear. This decision and friendship was to cost the Russian people dearly. After the Russian Civil War was over and the NEP economic policies were in place, we see a side of Stalin that is clear today, but was overseen in his time. It's his way of saying one thing, like mocking the opponents of NEP, to murdering all those who benefited from it and supported it when he took over. As Radzinski deftly puts it, Yesterday's lie was tactics. In the spring of 1922, 
Lenin makes the great mistake, as I like to put it, one that would seal the deal on Stalin's rise to power. Lenin created the post of General Secretary of the Party and appointed loyal Stalin to the post. Lenin said, We, meaning him and Trotsky, are in our fifties. You all are in your forties. We must prepare the thirty- and twenty-year-old comrades who will replace us. Select them and train them to replace us. Guess who'd be choosing the uh, twenty- and thirty-year-old replacements? Yeah, it was young friend Stalin. Lazar Kaganovich, son of a cobbler like Stalin, was given the task of populating the provincial party apparatus. Within a year, 43 party secretaries were set up throughout the USSR, and all were loyal to the Supreme Party Secretary. Lenin believed that Stalin had set up this docile, compliant party machine for his use. But Lenin was to never use the machine set up for him by his dear friend, as he was to suffer from the first of his strokes in 1922. By 1923, Lenin was in seriously bad shape and had begun to grow suspicious of all the power in Stalin's hands. He goaded Trotsky to fight Stalin openly, but it was too late. Enemies of Trotsky, and there were many, began to side with Stalin. Kamenev, Zinoviev, Orzhenokidze, and Bukharin made the soon-to-be-deadly decision to join their friend Stalin's side. It is at this time many point to as the time that Koba became Stalin. But I think that comrade Koba was long gone, as the steely Stalin was deep into his plan to take over the Communist Party and to become, as Montefiore puts it in his book, the Red Tsar. All that was left was for Lenin to die. Stalin no longer idolized Lenin, and he knew if Lenin recovered, he was doomed, as there was no way he could stand up to both Lenin and Trotsky. Lenin wanted Stalin out, and he was working hard to get ready for the 12th Congress to rid himself of his former pupil and elevate Trotsky, but his health wouldn't allow it. Trotsky was now his mouthpiece, and he delivered a powerful speech at the Congress. Kamenev, Guharin, and Zinoviev were frightened by the potential consequences of Trotsky's ascension. Then something odd happened. Lenin's health began to improve. Over the summer of 1923, his speech began to come back. His mind began to escape the jail it had been in. He began to write his next manifesto, the one which would plot the future of the USSR, the future without Comrade Koba. But Koba was already gone. The man who was once his friend and protector was now the power broker, Stalin. Still, Joseph was fearful of an all-out battle with Lenin, one he could lose if it came to it. He began to plot a strategy for inevitable fight for power should the unthinkable recovery take place. Stalin began to bring together allies to his side, noting all who dared waver. Oh, they would pay a dear price for the perceived disloyalty. 
But all of the preparations for battle with Lenin were unnecessary, as on January 21, 1924, the father of the Bolshevik Revolution was dead. Now Stalin had a new plan, create a godlike figure out of Lenin. In this atheist state, a messiah would arise, a cult of Lenin, directed by the cult leader, Stalin. First off, despite Lenin's wife Krupskaya being against it, Stalin had the fallen leader entombed and sent to Moscow from his deathbed in Nizhny Novgorod. His body was to be preserved for all to see. Some began to pass a rumor that Lenin was poisoned, but that is highly unlikely. His doctor V. Osipov said, quote, The final diagnosis dismisses the storied of the syphilitic character of Lenin's disease, or of arsenic poisoning. It was atherosclerosis, mainly affecting the cerebral blood vessels. The calcium deposit was so thick that the tweezers made a noise, as if they were rapping on stone. Trotsky was away in Sukhumi, recovering from an illness. It was a perfect setup for Trotsky's demise as a power player in the USSR. The next Congress held in January 1924 was Stalin's coming out party. He was to orchestrate the event like a maestro. At first, Zinoviev and Kamenev asked the members of the Central Committee to oust Trotsky. But who would have guessed that his archenemy Stalin would oppose the move? But quickly, Trotsky's post as head of the Red Army was given to one comrade Frunzi, who died shortly thereafter during ulcer surgery. He was replaced by a loyal Stalinist, Klim Voroshilov. Slowly but surely, Stalin's men began to creep into power. Zinoviev and Kamenev then saw the writing on the wall and united with Trotsky to stop Stalin. Their foolish yet anticipated move, left, was countered by Stalin and Bukharin's move, right. Others headed in, in the right direction included the trained union leader, Tomsky, and the titular head of the USSR, Alexei Rykov. Now Stalin had his sights set on the anti-NEP leftists. Bukharin published the following slogan in Pravda in April of 1925, quote, Enrich yourselves, develop holdings, and don't worry that they may be taken away from you. All around the USSR, the peasants sighed in relief. Zinoviev and Kamenev would attempt to strike back at the 14th Congress in December of 1925. Zinoviev stated, There exists within the party a most dangerous right deviation. It lies in the underestimation of the danger from the kulak, the rural capitalist. The kulak uniting the, with the urban capitalists, the NEP men, and the bourgeoisie intelligentsia will devour the party and the revolution. Years later, Stalin would use these words to destroy Bukharin and his associates, but now he supported his friend against the leftists. By a vote of 559 to 65, Kamenev and Zinoviev were defeated. Bukharin praised the system for its efficiency and rightness. 
Stalin had effectively rid himself of Trotsky, Kamenev, and Zinoviev from power without getting himself dirty. In this power vacuum, Sergei Kirov, Molotov, Kalinin, and Voroshilov moved in. Trotsky headed to Germany, ostensibly to undergo medical treatments. When he returned, Zinoviev and Kamenev offered him their alliance. Trotsky took them up on it, immaturely, not realizing that Stalin had set them all up. A mass protest was set up by the oppositionists against Stalin and Bukharin. The protest was known to the secret police, the GPU, and, of course, Stalin. They were allowed to proceed, but a counter-protest was set up to disrupt it, which went off as planned. Zinoviev, Kamenev, Pyatakov, Radik, Smilga, and Trotsky were accused of being traitors and expelled en masse from the party. Trotsky was forcibly banished from Russia forever. On a side note, he was also taken out of the Sergei Eisenstein movie titled October, which was just being finished. It was about the Bolshevik Revolution. The man who was the October Revolution was revised out of it by the new puppet master. Trotsky would not be the last one. Join me next time as a reign of terror would settle in over Russia with the murder, torture, and starvation of millions. A necessity to the twisted mind of the now all-powerful boss, Joseph Stalin. Today's Russian history movement, movement or moment, excuse me, is on a class of people known as kulaks. Kulak means fist in Russian, but its meaning in the sense of history was a class of what would be considered affluent peasants in the Russian Empire in the early days of the USSR. These people were the hardest working, and because of the that, the most affluent of the peasant class, if you could uh, really call them affluent. In 1901 to 1903, under the Minister of Finance, Sergei Witte, a number of reforms known as the Stolyepin Agrian reforms were put into place to change Russia's agricultural system. This was in response to the freeing of the serfs in 1861 by Tsar Alexander II. The problems with the freeing of the serfs is that they still didn't have any land or real access to it. Witte and Stolyepin sought to change that by giving access to credit to allow the peasants to buy land. They had to repay the credits, so it really amounted to a government-subsidized mortgage. Strolepin's idea was to strengthen the peasant class and turn them away from the growing radical elements permeating throughout Russia by incentivizing people to become more self-sufficient and tie them to the land. He felt that this was the best way to strengthen the grip of the Tsar on his country. The Kulaks were the peasant who took the most advantage of the program, and some became fairly well off, although most were just better off than before. Under early Leninist theory, before the NEP, the Kulak was considered by Lenin, quote, bloodsuckers, vampires, plunderers of the people, and profiteers who fatten on famine. But the real reason Lenin was against the Kulaks was the total lack of support for the Bolsheviks by this group of peasants. 
And let's face facts. If I've taught anything in my podcast about Lenin and Stalin, is that their glorious revolution to bring about a socialist Eden is to pull it mildly a pile of horse dung. They were more interested in holding on to and expanding their power, and they needed a scapegoat for their failed economic plan. And who better to use than hard-working peasants who could do little to fight back? By 1912, 16% of the peasants could be considered kulaks, as they had on average eight acres of tillable land. By the time the Bolsheviks came to power, kulaks abounded throughout Russia. So by May of 1929, a definition of a kulak was put out to spell out who these rich peasants were. The reason they needed this is because, frankly, it was really hard to define who a kulak was. As Zinoviev put it, we are, found of, excuse me, we are fond of describing any peasant who has enough to eat as a kulak. Ispolkoms, which are local communities of communist party members, were given free reign on defining a kulak because Stalin came up with the idea of the wreckers who were damaging the Russian economy and the kulaks must be members of these record traders. According to Izvestia, a leading party newspaper, quote, telegrams are pouring in from numerous parts of the Soviet Union with the news that deeds of arson and murders of active communists are being perpetrated by the kulaks. Soviet farms, village libraries, and Soviet bureaus have been burned down by the kulaks and their fierce opposition against all measures undertaken by our Communist Party and our Soviet government. Murderous attacks have been perpetrated against communist village school teachers and social workers, women as well as men. Seven murders and four attempted murders took place in public assemblies or in Soviet bureaus. The role of our communist dead contains the name of four chairmen of the local Soviets and one secretary. A destructive blow at the kulaks must be delivered immediately. Of course, this was a, all a terrible fallacy, but there was an ongoing famine and the government was going to, they weren't going to take the blame for, you know, the poor conditions. So the kulaks were blamed. Hundreds of thousands of so-called kulaks were sent to prisoner of labor camps or just plain shot. Another round of purges, part of the Great Purge of 1939, saw millions more killed or put into the gulags. Part of the Solzhenitsyn three-volume book, The Gulag Archipelago, details the horrid conditions in these forced labor camps. Estimates of deaths of kulaks during Lenin and Stalin's time range from 700,000 from the Soviet sources to 60 million by Solzhenitsyn. The truth which will never truly be known, is somewhere in between, but closer to the official figures based on the declassified archives released in the 1990s. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please jo join us on Facebook at Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, or you can go to the podcast website at russianrulers.podhoster.com. Remember, no www in front. And there, you can post a question, make a comment, or put forth a suggestion. But as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.